Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3 in just a minute. But I want to start off by asking you this morning, how many of you like a good story? You like a good story, okay? Whether it be in a movie, whether it be a book that you're reading, or whether, and this is kind of a lost art form today in our digital world, and in the world we're used to just looking at a screen or something like that, but how many of you like it when somebody can just tell you an amazing story? How many of you have storytellers within your family? They're basically like the family historians, at least, or they'll still start telling stories. Every time you get together with them, they tell the same stories over and over and over and over and over again, right? Well, good storytellers have to practice, so that's what they're doing with you. Uh, But good stories involve good, compelling facts, right? You can't just, you know, like, you can't just, like, give half the facts because a good story depends upon good and compelling facts. There's kind of this device that a lot of writers use and a lot of storytellers oftentimes use, and that's this phrase, one thing led, help me out, to another. How many of you have ever used that phrase before as you're trying to tell an account of something? One thing led to another. Have you ever stopped to think about how lazy that is? Especially for a writer, or especially for somebody who's trying to tell a story, or somebody's trying to give a historical account of something, you know, one thing led to another, and this happened. It's kind of like, imagine if you opened up your history books, and all of a sudden you see, uh, you see this person say, or you see in your history book, it, it starts off about World War II, and it says, in 1900, a man named Adolf Hitler flunked out of art class. One thing led to another, and then we had World War II. That's leaving out some important things, right? Or about this, in 1813, scientists discovered the existence of the electron. One thing led to another, and... Uh, the U.S. dropped two atomic bombs to effectively end World War II. It's kind of like you're leaving out some very, very important facts. Or, here's the thing, what if you open the Bible and it said this, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. One thing led to another, and Jesus is going to come back and all his believers are going to live eternally with him and forever in his kingdom. It's kind of leaving out some important things, right? This is why it's important that when we're telling the story of the gospel, when we're telling the story of the biblical account, we make sure that we get the important facts in there because the facts are compelling. Yes, God created us. He created heaven and the earth, and he created it perfectly, and we messed it up through sin. And then because of sin entered death, and by one man sin entered into the world through Adam, but by one man sin will also be eradicated through Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross, his resurrection from the tomb. You've left out so many important facts about the gospel. You see, one thing led to another. You know what you're talking about, but a lot of times the hearer doesn't know what it's talking about as well. You just can't do that. You can't skip over these watershed moments that lead to other events and lead to other things. But you see, that's kind of the idea really about where we're at this morning. We're on commandment number one in our Ten Commandments series. And the commandment is simply going to be this. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't have any other gods before or beside me. This first commandment, is the watershed commandment. It is the one commandment or the one thing that leads to all of the other ones. Matter of fact, Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, he said this, if you can get commandment number one down, the other commandments will follow. Commandment number one, have no other gods before me. Basically, don't be an idolater. If you can get that one down, all the other commandments will follow. So let's look in Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse number one. And we'll read through verse number three. 
Now, let me give you a little bit of a background. Coming through Exodus 19, you see that God had brought his people out of, uh, out of captivity and out of bondage and slavery for over 425 years uh, in Egypt. And now they are in the wilderness and they've escaped, uh, they've escaped the Egyptian army. They've seen the Red Sea parted. They've seen all kinds of powerful things. The 10 plagues, they've seen God display his power. Now God wants to display his nature to his people. So about three months into this journey and into this trek to the promised land, God stops them at Mount Sinai and he says, Moses, I need to talk to you. So I want you to come up and we're going to have a talk. And when he has this talk, the Ten Commandments are given. And here's the first set of it right this. It says, then God spoke all these words in verse number one. He says, I am the Lord, your God. That word Lord there in the original Hebrew is Yahweh. And that word Yahweh to the Jewish people, to the Israelites, they did not even feel in their human existence worthy of being able to utter the word. It was such a holy expression of the holiness of God. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Lest you forget, Israelites, I'm the Lord, I brought you out. Your freedom, where you're at right now, depends upon me. If it were not for me, you would still be in slavery. And then he says, do not have other gods besides me, or thou shalt have no other gods before me. Father, I pray that you would speak this morning, speak clearly through your word. I pray that as your messenger, I wouldn't get in the way of what you're saying. Lord, I pray that you have been worshipped and lifted high and edified and built up in our hearts through the worship this morning, Lord that there are 10,000 reasons and an infinity more that we should worship you and that you are good and that you are great and you are holy. I pray this morning through this message that you will show us why you are the only one that is worthy of our worship. Forgive us, Lord. Convict us where there may be idolatry in our hearts. For it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So here we see commandment number one, do not have any other gods beside me. Like I said, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., whose, whose uh, birthday we celebrate tomorrow, but old school Martin Luther from like back in the 1500s, he said this, the rest of the Ten Commandments all flow out of this one. Actually, he went a little bit further and said the first commandment and the tenth commandment are the bookends that sandwich all of the other commandments in together. He said if you keep these two, you can keep all of them. See, commandment number one says, don't have any other gods but God. In other words, he is what you must desire, and he's the only thing that you require for life and for happiness and for fulfillment in your life. Commandment 10, which we'll see later on in the series, says, do not covet, which means basically be satisfied and be happy with what this awesome, infinite God has given and is doing for you in your life. So Luther was saying this, is if these two commandments are true in your heart, then the others will just fall into place. They are the one thing that leads to another. They're the watershed commandments. Jesus would echo this a little bit later on in the New Testament when he said, love me and love others. Out of these two commandments, all of the other commandments fall. And by the time we were into the New Testament, there's over 600 commandments and laws for the people to follow. He said, you want, some, you want a tip on how to follow all of them? Just get your heart right with God and have a big heart for people. And that will cover all of the others. That's the one thing that leads to the other. So he says, I'm the Lord your God. Do not have any other gods besides me or before me. Now that, that phrase there, besides me or before me, it's not like God is saying this. He's not like saying, I, don't, I just want to be the, the top dog God of all your other gods. He's not saying, of all the other gods you have and all the other gods that you worship and bow down to, I want to be the one that you bow down to the most. All right? He's not saying that. What he's saying is, in the Hebrew, that word means, I don't want anything else in my presence. 
It's kind of like, it's kind of like if I told Stacy right after we got married, you know, Stacy, you're my first wife. Obviously, she's going to have a problem right there. All of a sudden, her eyebrows are going up, right? And I'm going to say, no matter how many other wives I take, you're going to be number one. You're always going to be number one. You're always going to be my favorite. I promise you this. How well do you, most of you know Stacy pretty well. How well do you think she's going to take that? She's like, no, man, if you wanted sister wives, you should have probably gone into Mormon ministry, uh, not, into, not, not into evangelical Christian ministry, right? It's just not going to work. Now, how many of you have, how many of those spouses? I see you guys sitting there like, yeah, my wife's not going to stand for that either, right? It's the same thing that, we're, that, that God is saying here. He's like, look, I'm your God. If you're committed to follow me, there's no other gods. It's not, I want to be number one over all the other ones. It's, I don't want any others around you in your life. Because God even says later on in verse number 5, he says, I am a jealous God. Look what he says in verse number 5 of Exodus 20. He says, do not bow down in worship to them. Do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a, help me out, a jealous God. And I will bring the consequence of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Get this. We today, in 2021, are possibly reaping the effects of the idolatry of our great-grandfathers. The question is, what are our great-grandchildren and our grandchildren and our children going to reap because of our idolatry? We have to be careful. We have to make sure we take this to heart. No other gods before me. See, on, this, on, the, on, the, on the surface, it seems pretty, pretty simple, right? You know, you're probably thinking, you know, at home, I don't have any, like, altars set up to where, you know, I got statues, and I don't have, like, you know, I don't do these weird rituals at night to all these false gods or anything like that. But idolatry in the modern day looks a lot different than it did back then. We don't need statues and altars. We've got things and ideas and people that we will worship like we should. We say this because we really don't understand what worship and idolatry really is in the eyes of God. So today I want to look at three quick things. When I say quick, I do mean quick because we got some water that's cooling off. Three quick things that help us to understand this commandment. Do not have gods before me. Do not have any other gods but me. So when we think of idolatry, we think in terms of statues, we think in terms of strange rituals, but I want to give the working definition of what it is. I want to see that keeping the commandments, number one, is really the watershed, the watershed commandment, and then I want to see how we can develop an obedient spirit to follow the commandments. So first of all, number one, let's get a definition of what idolatry is. Idolatry is simply this. It's anything that we put in the place of God. Now let me go one further on that. It's not just something we put in the place of God. It's because we look at that and we think, okay, I haven't removed God. God is is still important to me. I'm here at church on Sunday. I drove through the snow, man. I'm here with my mask on. I'm here in a pandemic or I'm watching here. I could have been sleeping in and I'm watching right now. I'm worshiping God. So I'm not replacing God with anything. I want to say this, not just to put in place of God, but also next to the place of God or anywhere near the place of God. So when he says in the place of God is not replacing it, and anything that holds the same place or alongside of God as important to us or necessary to us, that has become an idol. It's anything that we consider to be so central or fundamental or essential to our lives that we can't imagine life without it. So ask yourself this, what do I absolutely need in my life in order to make my life good? What do I absolutely have to have in my life in order to think that my life is good? In other words, if I were to lose some of this stuff, what are some things that I can lose and life will still be okay? But there's a couple things in my life that if I lose it, I can't imagine life without it. 
I can't imagine life being worth living without it. Maybe for you, it's money. It's your bank account. Maybe it's having that good job that brings home that good money. Maybe for you, it's if I, will, if I finally can get married, or if I can find that, that someone that completes me, like Jerry Maguire. That's an old movie now, isn't it? If I can find somebody that just completes me, then, 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 then life will be good. Or maybe it's to have a great body or to have a great sex life. Maybe it's the achievement of your dreams or your recognition by others. Maybe it's the freedoms that you enjoy as an American. What is it there that without it, life would hardly be worth living? We all have them. Don't sit in church and say, oh, I don't got that stuff. As long as I got Jesus, that's all I need. I saw a mug the other day. Is all I need is a, little bit of Je- is a little bit of coffee and a whole lot of Jesus. Thanks for putting your idolatrous spirit right on your mug. I'm just teasing. I'm just, I'm just teasing. It's my wife's mug. Um, so <laughs> whatever that thing is that you say, this is going to affect the quality and this is going to affect the joy and just the substance of my life, that's your God. That's your idol. That's what we're prone to worship. Maybe you even fantasize about it. You daydream about it. You pine for it. You fear losing it. Those are the things that are all forms of worship of idols in our lives. Maybe you even write songs about it. In our culture, we write songs about love or about relationships, right? Kesha, she sings, because your love, 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 your love is my drug. She talks about going through withdrawal symptoms by not being able to have this relationship in her life. Leanne, okay, if you're, if you're not into hip-hop, maybe you're into a little bit of uh, country. So you know who Leanne Rhymes and Trisha Yearwood is? Remember that song from back like early 2000s? How do I live without you? I'm not going to sing it all. But how do I live without you? I want to know. How do I breathe without you if you ever go? How do I ever, ever, ever survive? How do I, how do I, oh, how do I live? What it's done is it's placed this relationship at a place where I cannot continue to live if I don't have it in my life. But what does the Word tell us? The Word tells us this. You cannot continue to live without my presence in your life. And once this life is over, if you do not have my presence, it doesn't matter how good your life was, you go off into an eternity without salvation. See, the thing is, is that something or someone will be so fundamental that we can't imagine living our lives without it. And that proves something that we have to know about ourselves, is that we are helpless and hopeless, inescapable worshipers. Even if you say, no, I'm not. Even, the people, even people who say that they're agnostic or atheistic, they say, I'm not a worship. We were created and pre-wired and hardwired by our creator to worship. We were created to worship him, but we may not all worship him, but we will all worship someone or something. We'll all do it. Think about it like this. None, have you ever thought about how you would like to go? This is a very morbid way of of having church today. Have you ever thought about how, how would you like to go? Have you say, you know what, I would, I would like to go in the least painful way possible, right? I would like to go in my sleep. Have you say, you know what, I'd just like to drop dead of a heart attack. No, no, not even a chance of me going to the hospital and having surgery. You know, just, just if I'm going to go, let's go, right? And that's why some of you still eating quarter pounders and double quarter pounders and triple quarter pounders. It's like, if I'm going to go, if I'm going to have it, I want to have the whole way, right? No one says, you know what, I'd like to slowly burn to death. No one says, you know what, I'd like to drown. That would be great. That's bad to talk about drowning when we're getting ready to baptize, isn't it? Yeah. That's in poor taste, right? But when you drown, you don't drown because you run out of air. You drown because you breathe in water. 
See, breathing is an involuntary function. If you're underwater and you're struggling for air, you're eventually going to, if you keep holding that breath in, you're eventually going to go unconscious. And guess what you're going to do in your unconscious state? The involuntary function of breathing is going to take over. And that's when people drown. That's when the harmful thing takes over. This is a great illustration and understanding of idolatry and the effects of all these things around us that we hold so important. We are all involuntary worshipers. We will worship something. We were wired for it. The question is whether we're breathing in the worship of God, which leads to life, or we're breathing in the worship of idols, which leads to death. So the question is, what are we breathing in? What will we worship? It's not a question of will we worship. It's a question of what will we worship. Idolatry is when we choose to worship something else. So in, in Exodus 20, verse 5, it said, Don't bow to them, don't worship them, don't serve them, because I'm a jealous God. So an idol is, there's, very three, there's three things that we have to really understand. An idol is anything that I love as much or more than God. An idol is anything that I trust as much or as more as God. And anything that I obey as much or more than God. So let me ask you a couple more probing questions. What do you love most in this life? The one thing that you absolutely hold on to and could never let go of because the one thing that you absolutely hold on and could never let go of because it's the reason for your existence. What are you most pursuing in life? What you most pursue is what you prize the most. So if you're pursuing success and a six-digit income, you're probably pursuing power and money and all the things that we can see and grab onto and are tangible and think are our security. When you think about the future, what do you have to have in it in order not to be afraid of the future? What do you trust the most? What do you need to have tomorrow in order to make tomorrow worth living? You look at the future and say, you know what, as long as I got blank, I think I'll be okay. What's the one thing you find yourself turning to when things go wrong? When you've had a bad day, when your world begins to fall apart, what's the one thing that you turn to to give you comfort? Is it alcohol, substances, relationships? Maybe you're just turned to the fact that you're always the smartest person in the room. So as long as I got my smarts and my brains, I think I'll be able to work things out. See, as long, if it's not God, it's an idol. What is in your life right now that losing it would absolutely devastate you? I think what we saw back on January 6th, is a good illustration when we can make, when some people can build up a nation and an idea and a version of freedom and make it an idol. Because the thought that it was threatened was enough to break down everything else. We see that playing out before us left and right all the time, putting too much emphasis on this or that or him or her all the while, God is standing there in commandment number one. His first piece of revealing who he is to us is, I'm your God. Don't have anyone else that you worship. What commands our obedience? What temptations can we just not say no to? Maybe it's appetite. Maybe it's your drive to make money. Maybe it's your drive for passionate relationship. Maybe it's the idea of perfection. For me, a lot of times, my temptation is, I want to make sure people are happy. I worry a lot about what people think about me. That can become a God and become an idol. So it's anything that we put in place of God. And I love what Pastor J.D. Greer says. He says, God is not content to merely be important to us or an influence on us or even a priority to us. 
He must be our only God. He must be the God who consumes our hearts and commands our obedience and our worship. So we must, command, we must understand why commandment number one is so important because it declares that nothing in this world can be as valuable or as valuable to us as God or more valuable than God. So the question is, am I fully given to God and does anything else in my life rival my allegiance to him? The second thing that we have to understand after a definition of idolatry is number two, is that idolatry is the gateway sin. It's the gateway sin. Some of you might be familiar with the term a gateway drug. What's a gateway drug? It might be something that's really considered not to be that bad, but it's what ends up getting somebody hooked on it and down the road to harder drugs and other things. It's, it's a gateway thing that leads and opens and unlocks the door to a path that you shouldn't have gone down. Idolatry is the gateway sin. When we hold idols in our hearts, all other forms of sin are possible. Three roots of sin are the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. All of those things, we lust after those things because we hold them above God or beside God and say, I have to have that. When God says clearly the only thing you have to have is me because out of me all of the other things that will satisfy you flow. So what's your gateway sin? See, just like a gateway drug, idolatry is the driving force behind all of our disobedience to God's command. So let me give you some examples. If you know the Ten Commandments pretty well, let's think about some of the commandments. Commandment number eight is what? Anybody know off the top of your head? Do not steal. Commandment number eight is do not steal. That's a good one, right? You may be sitting here thinking, yeah, I don't do that. But what makes people steal? What makes people cheat in business? What makes people fudge on their taxes? Clearly, it is the inescapable desire to have more money, to have more materials, to have more power. It's idolatry because they need that money to be happy or they need that, those, that, those things to feel secure. They're compelled to break the eighth commandment and to cheat others in order to get those things. Commandment number seven, do not commit adultery. Well, what makes a person commit adultery? It's the desire for pleasure or emotional fulfillment is so strong and controlling that they're willing to violate the ethics and the vows of their marriage to say, I will be happier and more fulfilled in another relationship. So we have, idol, we have made an idol of our desires. We have made an idol of someone else that we desire. Commandment number 10, don't covet. What makes us covet? Well, there's something that someone else has that we think that we absolutely have to have to be as happy as they are. I'm not content with God's provision in my own life, so therefore I'm going to go out and find what's made somebody else happy in theirs, and hopefully it will make me happy in mine. We think about it. We fantasize about it. We can't be happy until we have it. Therefore, we worship it, so we covet it. Commandment number nine, do not lie, right? Do not lie. I don't even need to go there, right? What makes us lie? We think that a lie will benefit us more than the truth will. Or we like the lie better than we like the truth because it reveals what we're worshiping. We're worshiping an idea rather than the one who is real. See, here's where I struggle. I have a temptation sometimes to exaggerate sometimes my accomplishments when I talk to people. Or sometimes, if I feel like somebody's feeling sorry for me and how bad I got it, I have a tendency to exaggerate how bad things really are because it makes people just think about me more. Why? Because sometimes that means that Derek is an idol. And you do it too. It may not be the exact same way, but we all do it the same. Commandment number six, do not murder. Hopefully we don't have any murderers in here. Don't raise your hand if you have. But what makes us murderous? What makes us violent? What makes us aggressive? If you trace it back, it's going to find its roots in idolatry. 
Most people, and if they're right in the head, they don't just find joy in killing strangers. They'll kill someone who has come at an idol. They, heart, they, they threaten someone, or they wanted to take something from you, or you got so jealous that they had to be gone. Because that person posed a threat to your idol. They insulted you. Now the only thing that will make you happy is their harm or bad fortune to satisfy you. They took something you loved or they threatened you or something like that, and so therefore they need to be eliminated. And don't just think about murder in terms of throwing somebody into a trash compactor. And that's, that's pretty graphic, isn't it? Murder just isn't in the terms of taking a person's life. Murder is in the terms of this. I want to see harm come to someone else, and I delight in somebody else's harm. And that brings it home a little bit more, doesn't it? Sometimes, and I'll just be really transparent, sometimes, being, a church, being the pastor of a small church, I look at other ministries and I think they're, you know, they're so big and it seems like they're so successful, and then you'll hear that the pastor or something had an affair or fell from grace, and it's hard sometimes in the flesh not to think, you know what, he flew too close to the sun, and not to feel a little bit justified in that. Where you look at a person at your, at your work, and they're just, they're, they're killing it. They're doing a great job. And then you find out maybe they've been cheating the company out of some money and you, you feel happy about that because now they're out of the picture. See, that's murderous intent. To see someone harmed or to, or to rejoice over someone's bad fortune because you had a problem with them. Commandment number two says don't make any graven images. So this goes back to idolatry. And we're going to look at this one hard next week, but we make graven images of God because we really don't like what God really is on his own. We begin to put God in a box and form him in the way we want him to be. We say, God, here's who I want you to be in my life. Don't step out of that because this is the way I see you working in my life and it's the way I feel like you should. Let me give you an example. The Bible tells us that adultery is wrong, right? The Bible also says that you shouldn't get divorced unless there's a very specific set of criteria. And if not, Jesus said in Matthew 5.23, if you get divorced outside of this set of criteria, then it's the same as being an adulterer. I've talked to so many people, though, that look at that verse and say, but God wants me to be happy. So it's going to be okay to do this, even though the Bible is clearly and cannot be more clear that this is not right. So what you've done is you've made a graven image of God and said, God, ultimately, more than his law being obeyed, wants me to be happy. So we remake God in our image to fit what we want to do. We're willing to redefine God's word in order to get what we want. And this is how it all works. You can trace all of those back to the first commandment, right? The breaking of the first commandment, idolatrously thinking that I need something that God is not providing, causes me to break the seventh commandment of committing adultery. And then to justify my behavior, I break the second commandment, of not making God in my own image. See how it's the watershed? See how it's the gateway sin? Idolatry is the culprit behind breaking all the other commandments. It's like smoke from a fire. If you follow the trail of smoke, you'll always come back to the source, which is idolatry. See, adultery is smoke. Lying, cheating, murder, all of it is smoke. The fire is idolatry before God. Idolatry instead of worshiping God. Let's move on to number three for sake of time this morning. Idolatry is only cured by a true vision of God. 
What's this cure of this gateway sin? We've seen the importance of understanding just how much God needs to be worshipped. We've seen the importance of understanding that nothing else can sit above or beside or even closely below God in importance in our lives. So what's the cure? How do I get this right? How do I make sure that I am following commandment number one? I love what Pastor Paul David Tripp says. He says, we worship our way into sin, idolatry. Therefore, we must worship our way out of sin. Get that. We worship our way into sin. Therefore, we must worship our way out of sin. I can't just sit down and say, okay, I'm going to go burn up all my idols. I'm just going to basically go through all of these steps to just manage my behavior and change my patterns and everything will be good. Because if I could have done that, I never would have gotten into sin to begin with. You see, sin comes from a deceitful heart. Our heart is bent wrong. It's not that I've just got these bad tastes. That's the, that's the problem with dieting and trying to make big, big changes in your health. You have to have a change of mind and the way you look at food and your relationship with all of that in order to really come to a place where you can get towards a healthy eating habit. But this is so much bigger than a diet. We're talking about getting off of our idols and back onto worshiping the one true God who gives us everything. We'll worship our way into sin by worshiping idols. We must worship our way out of sin by turning our eyes upon a true and holy and mighty and majestic God. So let's look at what Israel said. If you flip over to Exodus chapter 24, Exodus chapter 24, and what goes on in Exodus chapter 20 all the way through chapter 24 is there's a series of of Moses going up and down the mountain. He first goes up and gets the Ten Commandments, then he comes back down, and then God summons him again. He goes up and he begins to get other commandments and other laws. So it's just God giving him all of these laws, all of these things that he wants his children to do. And in verse number 24, or in verse number 3 of chapter 24, it says, Moses finally came and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all of the ordinances. Then all the people responded with a single voice and said, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. By this time, they don't just have 10. They've got like 600. All right? How many of you, when you sit down at like a contract negotiation or something, they lay out all these terms and you just say, I'll do everything it says? Normally we don't do that because there's some give and take, right? This is not how the Israelites approached God. They said, we're not going to negotiate. We're going to just follow whatever he says. What put them in the place to do that? Because I don't know about you, but my flesh nature constantly, constantly wants to negotiate with God about what he says. I'm thinking about everything you say. I don't negotiate with you. I'm just going to do everything that you say. Why are they so ready? Well, you have to go back to Exodus chapter 19 to get a picture of the headspace that they were in. Remember, three months before Exodus 19, they had seen 10 plagues rush through the nation of, uh, rush through the nation of Egypt, and God protected them from all of that. And that ended up bringing about the end of their 400 years of slavery, and God led them out. He led them by a pillar of fire at night and cloud of smoke in the day. He, they, saw, they saw the Red Sea just collapse on Uh, on the Egyptian army when they crossed over on dry land, by the way. That doesn't happen every day. They had seen the power of God on display. They'd seen his hand time and time and time and time again. And now as they get to Mount Sinai, 
basically what happens is they set up camp there and God says to Moses, we need to talk. And so he schedules a meeting. He says, look, in a couple of days, Moses, I want you to come up to the top of the mountain and I'm going to give you my laws. I'm going to give you what I want your people to do. But here's the thing, Moses, don't bring anybody with you except for Aaron. He says, what I want you to do when I show up, there's going to be thunder and there's going to be lightning and there's going to be earthquakes and there's going to be all kinds of things going on because that is the effect on creation of my presence. He says, so what you need to do, you need to set up, all this is in chapter 19, you need to set up barriers all the way around the foothills of the mountain and tell everyone, do not cross over that barrier, don't even come close to that barrier, because the moment you do, the moment you step into my holy presence, your feeble humanity will not be able to handle it. You will fall dead. We see that also on display when the Ark of the Covenant later on in Israel's history is created and anyone who touched the Ark of the Covenant would die. Why? Because the presence of a holy God in a broken humanity is dangerous. It's not because God's not good. It's not because God's not loving. It's because we are so infinitely wrong in his presence to his infinite holiness. And so what happens is, in later on in chapter 19, God shows up. And all of a sudden, there's lightning, there's thunder, there's earthquakes. And nobody has a problem going to the barrier. They're like, I'm going to the barrier. And they're like, hey, Moses, good luck, bro. See ya. So he comes back down after getting the Ten Commandments. He says, here's what God said. And then he goes back up, and he comes down, and he goes back up, and he comes down. And by all this time, the whole time, there's lightning, and there's thunder, and there's all kinds of things that's taking place. And he comes down, and he says, all right, here's everything God wants us to do. And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll do it. Who wouldn't do what such a mighty and powerful and terrifying God can display? And I think that leads us to understand. And and then later on, what's going to happen in the history of Israel, you know as well as I do, as days goes on, they lose that vision of God. They lose that vision of a holy, infinitely righteous God. And here's what happens to us. In the loss of the holiness of God, we begin to think that we're good. For some reason, it's always in comparison. When Isaiah saw God, In Isaiah chapter 6, he said, I was speechless. I was dumbfounded. Why? Because in the presence of God, all of our arrogance, all of our pride, all of our ideas of how amazing and how vast we are, it just gets obliterated. There's coming a day when every, every human is going to stand before a holy and righteous judge, and there's not going to be an ounce of righteousness that we can express, that we did, that he's going to say, you know what? That impresses me. Come on in. The only thing that will get God's attention is to say, I plead the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. His blood that covers us so that when he sees us, he no longer sees our sin. He sees the righteousness of his son imputed upon us. They got a picture of a couple of things. Number one, they got a picture of his awesome size, that he's huge, that he's massive, What is it that helps you understand the size of God? For me, I've mentioned this before, for me, it's space and the ocean. Every time I look up into the sky, I'm like, man, I'm little. Man, I'm little. And when I'm on vacation and when I can sit on the beach and I look out at the vastness of the ocean, all you can see is water. That's all you can see with your eyes. I'm reminded just how big God really is. And even that doesn't touch the tip of the iceberg because the expanse of the universe, he says, is just the expanse of the palm of his hand. 
They got a glimpse, just a glimpse of the magnitude of God. They also got an understanding of his untouchable holiness. That even to come close to the mountain that he was occupying would mean the end of their life. But they also, and this is so important, they got a picture of his power and his might and his desire to save us. That as worthless as we are in our sin, as unholy as we are, as wretched and wrecked as we are and broken as we are in our sin, this holy, huge, righteous God looks at us and has pity and he says, I love you and I'm going to give my holy, perfect, huge, righteous son for your sake. So what they got a picture of was his limitless power to save. Look at verse number 20, or look at verse number 2 of Exodus 20. I'm the Lord your God. Notice that personal possessive there. I'm the Lord your God. I'll be your God. For some of you today, you're watching or you're sitting here, you need to hear this in your heart. He wants to be your God. He created you so he could be your God. And then he says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. We need to remember sometimes, church, if you've been in church for a long time, sometimes we can forget this. We can be like Israel who loses the vision of the holiness of God. We can forget the pit from which we've been dragged. And we begin to think that we deserve it. We begin to think that we're an asset to God. See, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of slavery. Do not forget his compassion. Do not forget his love. Do not forget his mercy that sets us free. See, seeing God's true glory gives us the perspective we need for obedience. In chapter, in chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, he said, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now, if you'll carefully listen to me and keep my commandment, you'll be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine, you're going to be my possession. And you'll be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. What he's saying is, I'm the one who saw your suffering. I heard your cries. I had compassion on you. I carried you like a father on eagle's wings, out of danger, out of slavery. And for us, church, out of sin, out of lostness, out of the grip of hell's flames. I set you on a rock. Reflect on this. The God of infinite power, size, and untouchable holiness took up the cross to save us. So as we close out this morning, this is the view. This is what calls us to a place of true worship of God. This is what calls us away from idolatry, is a clear vision of the true majesty of of God and of Jesus Christ. So I want to close with this question this morning. What kind of vision of God do you have right now? Is your vision 2020? I don't mean the year. It's almost become like a you know, it's become its own tag. Is you, do you have perfect 2020 clear vision of, of the holiness of God? Or has it been tainted by things? Are there things that are standing in the way that you've allowed to become idols that sit there before you even get to God? Or has God just become, and this is what we'll talk about next week, has God just become a mascot or a trinket or a genie that you use to chase after all your other idols? Because that's what I think the American idea, idolatry really is today. We're okay to have Jesus, but Jesus is just a conduit to all the other stuff we really want. That's not a proper vision of God. 
So when you see the largeness, the holiness, the glory, and the love of God, how can we ever settle for lesser idols? How can we ever settle for lesser idols? I went to two funerals this past week. No matter how much money they had, they couldn't buy their way out of death. No matter how good of a person they were, couldn't buy their, they couldn't get their way out of that. Why? Because it's going to come to us. Only, only Jesus Christ gives us eternal life, pulls us away from those things. Only Jesus. So the two questions that we ask this morning as we go to a time of invitation is, in light of the God that has just been presented to us this morning, how can I settle for lesser? How and why would I settle for less? And the question is, do I truly belong to him in the first place? If you're here this morning and you've never trusted God as your Savior, Jesus as your Savior, today's the day. Or if you're watching today, today's the day. Don't put it off. This majesty, this power, this holiness, this might, and all that power sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross and raise him from the dead so that we could have eternal life. So as we bow our heads and we close our eyes, the Bible says if we confess our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. What area would you say, you know what, I've got some idols. I've got some idols that I've been worshiping and I need to step away from them. I I need to worship God. The way we cast down those idols is to get a clear picture of him. So here's the prayer we pray if we feel guilty of idolatry. Lord, give me a clear picture of you. Give me a clear vision and understanding of who you are and the goodness, the majesty, your holiness. Because whatever picture of God you have right now, I can assure you upon the authority of God's word, it is not big enough. Ask God, God, give me a bigger, clearer picture like Israel had at Mount Sinai. Give me that kind of picture. Whatever it takes to break the idols, give me the picture. If you're here this morning, you don't know Christ, say, Lord, be my God. Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sins to take me to heaven when this life is over. As we stand this morning and we pray and go to a time of response and invitation, Whatever need you have this morning, would you please come? Father, I pray that you would move in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.